0: I really like Docketwise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, Docketwise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about Docketwise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration dash review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So without further ado, let's start the review. Welcome to September, everyone. That means a lot of things, perhaps most importantly, that my annual earth, wind, and fire pun is only three weeks away. I myself took off Friday for personal reasons this week, so if you only hear from me, it's because the courts decided to publish only up to Thursday. But if a court got sneaky and published Friday well, let's give a warm welcome to KKTP partner Ed Ramos in what will surely be his first or second of hopefully many appearances on the weekly pod. If not, we'll be hearing from him in December. And thanks a million for editing, Liz Montano. Here we go. Starting off, we've got Gonzalez Castillo v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 31st, 2022. This case is about serious non-political crimes and Interpol Red notices. A podcast favorite. Mr. Gonzalez-Castillo is an asylum seeker from El Salvador. In that country, he, quote, experienced multiple run-ins with gangs and the police, and at the age of 17, he was brutally beaten by police multiple times when he was walking to school because they accused him of gang affiliation, end quote. A year later, he was beaten and kidnapped by gang members for information about a man that Mr. Gonzalez-Castillo didn't even know. And he was again beaten later that year when he refused to help MS-13 collect their extortion rents. Mr. Gonzalez-Castillo swears up and down that he's not affiliated with MS-13. He entered the U.S. in 2014. Remember that. In removal proceedings, he applied for asylum and related relief based on his fear of MS-13, and it appears, the Salvadoran police. He represented himself without an attorney before the IJ and the BIA. In those pro se proceedings, DHS submitted an Interpol Red Notice, kind of like an international arrest warrant. Kind of. Official Department of Justice policy states that red notices do not constitute probable cause that the listed individual has committed a crime. Here, the red notice is essentially a request by the country of El Salvador to maybe arrest Mr. Gonzalez-Castillo, or at least be aware of him. But it's not a formal extradition request with all the attendant burdens and protections that would entail in federal court. The basis for this red notice, you ask? El Salvador accused Mr. Gonzalez-Castillo of being a member of MS-13 and affiliate entities, and alleges that in 2015, Mr. Gonzalez-Castillo was, quote, responsible for strikes within the criminal organization, according to the witness in the protection scheme, codenamed Saulo, criminal case 47-2-18-6, end quote. The crime is categorized as a, quote, terrorist organization, end quote, whatever that means, and is brought under Article 13 of the Salvadoran Code, a law not submitted into the record by anyone. Mr. Gonzalez Castillo, of course, swore in immigration court that he's not with MS-13 and that the allegation is ludicrous because he was inside the United States at the time of this alleged strike. The IJ found Mr. Gonzalez Castillo, quote, largely credible, end quote, except for his denials of the allegations in the Red Notice. The IJ, therefore, denied the application for asylum and withholding removal, determining that, quote, this case was on all fours with the BIA's published opinion in matter of WERB, end quote, meaning that the IJ believed that the red notice constituted serious reasons for believing that Mr. Gonzalez-Castillo committed a serious non-political crime before coming to the U.S. Tee up the WERB, Ninth Circuit, tee up the WERB! The IJ also denied asylum as untimely and convention against torture protection on the merits. The BIA affirmed with little addition. The Ninth Circuit did not. The INA bars asylum and withholding of removal where an IJ has serious reasons for believing that a non-citizen has committed a serious non-political crime. What does that mean? It's complicated and mushy, but at least in the Ninth Circuit, the serious reasons for believing standard equates to probable cause. And recall, DOJ official policy says that red notices don't equate to probable cause. The Ninth Circuit said the same thing almost exactly one year ago in Villalobos Sura v. Garland, episode 69. Unlike in Sura, however, DHS produced nothing here except the red notice in support of its serious non-political crime allegation. Accordingly, even though Mr. Gonzalez Castillo has the ultimate burden to establish asylum and withholding eligibility, quote, the Red Notice cannot constitute substantial evidence in support of the finding that there are serious reasons for believing that the non-citizen has committed a serious non-political crime outside the United States, End quote. Does that mean that Red Notices standing alone will never bar a non-citizen from asylum in the Ninth Circuit? Maybe. In this case, at least, the Red Notice, quote, Contains errors that cast doubt on its reliability and it fails to articulate any specific crime of which Mr. Gonzalez Castillo is accused. Even the IJ's court interpreter didn't know what Mr. Gonzalez Castillo was referring to when he said the word strike in Spanish. And of course, Mr. Gonzalez Castillo was physically in the United States on the alleged date of the alleged incident but it's also a pretty broad holding. Quote, "...turning next to issues with red notices generally, it does not appear to us a red notice alone is ordinarily sufficient to establish probable cause that a crime has occurred." End quote. Go on. And yes, in addition to DOJ itself, of which IJs and the BIA are a part, the First Circuit, Third Circuit, and Eighth Circuit seem to agree. It's more nuanced than make your case when you have a red notice, but this decision's a big loss for the reliability of red notices. But what about burdens, Oil argued as it pounded the table. After all, in matter of verb, the BIA said that regardless of what an IJ must ultimately conclude, In removal proceedings, DHS must simply produce, quote, some evidence, end quote, that a mandatory bar to asylum and withholding of removal applies, whereby the burden then shifts to the asylum seeker without an attorney who doesn't speak English to rebut this low threshold by a preponderance of evidence. If the non-citizen cannot meet that burden, the non-citizen loses. That's what the BIA said in WERB. And other BIA decisions of late have held similarly in other contexts. But the Eighth Circuit rejected this argument in Barahona, episode 41, and the Ninth Circuit has now done so too. The BIA's decision and DOJ's regulatory framework cannot override this statute, and the statute only permits IJs to bar asylum and withholding where there exists serious reasons for believing, which again is a standard that equates to probable cause. Burdens in matter of word be damned at least when the statute is tethered to a serious reason for believing, standard. Big holding. The Ninth Circuit did affirm the denial of asylum. The application was filed many years past the one-year deadline, and in any event, Mr. Gonzalez-Castillo didn't make the arguments he was making before the Ninth Circuit to accept that one-year deadline when he was litigating the case by himself. So no asylum and no possibility of a green card in the future, at least based on his fears. But withholding of removal is getting remanded due to the mistaken serious non-political crime finding, as is Convention Against Torture protection. Cattaferril is never barred by anything, and the IJ and the BIA's denial wasn't sufficiently reasoned here. For example, the IJ didn't believe that Mr. Gonzalez Castillo reasonably feared the police after concluding that he had never been arrested or detained, but Mr. Gonzalez Castillo testified to the opposite. Also, the IJ failed to mention highly probative evidence, such as the serious beating Mr. Gonzalez-Castillo experienced at the hands of police. So congratulations on the big win to attorneys Amelia Willey and Judah Lackin, and law students Nicole Conrad and Joya Manjur, all from the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Definitely going to remember this one. And there's more! As Mr. Gonzalez-Castillo was pro se before the IJ and the BIA, his counsel before the Ninth Circuit argued that the IJ failed in his or her duty to fully develop the record, an argument similar to the one adopted by the Fourth Circuit in Quintero v. Garland. And even prior Ninth Circuit decisions require IJs in such situations to, quote, scrupulously and conscientiously probe into, inquire of, and explore for all the relevant facts, end quote. So good law reiterated for pro se non-citizens in the Ninth Circuit. And good for EOIR, too, because in this case, the Ninth Circuit held that the IJ did just that. Case still remanded, though, with, quote, cost taxed against the government, end quote, no less. And that is Gonzales Castillo v. Garland. Next is Romero Milan v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 29th, 2022. Looking at this decision, I knew the name looked slightly familiar. It was discussed way back on episode 2, when Garland was a bar. Apparently the Ninth Circuit withdrew its decision a few months later, and it has now reissued it, amended of course. It's been two and a half years. Let's talk about it again. And ah yes, that's what it was. The Ninth Circuit had certified three questions to the Arizona Supreme Court in its first case, all relating to the divisibility of two Arizona drug statutes. The Arizona Supreme Court has now answered, and here we all are again, still together after all these years. This case involves two separate cases consolidated together involving non-citizens who don't appear to have lawful status in the United States. There was a third non-citizen in the first decision two and a half years ago, but he has since passed away. And as it's predominantly legal questions, know this. In one case, the non-citizen was convicted of possessing or using drug paraphernalia in violation of Arizona Revised Statute Section 13-3415, and in the other case, the non-citizen was convicted of possessing a narcotic drug for sale in violation of Arizona Revised Statute Section 13-3408A2. If the convictions match the removability provision at INA Section 237A2BI, as a violation of a law relating to a controlled substance, the non-citizens are ineligible for relief from removal. In this case, it appears, adjustment to lawful permanent resident status, I assume through an immediate relative, like a U.S. citizen spouse, parent, or child over the age of 21. So, following the Supreme Court case Malouli v. Lynch in 2015, a state drug crime only relates to a controlled substance if the state crime requires, as an element, the involvement of a drug defined at 21 U.S.C. Section 802. Section 802 is the federal government's controlled substance list, implemented by the Controlled Substance Act. What I'm always referring to as the CSA. That inquiry is in turn governed by the categorical approach, and as so often occurs, Arizona includes more drugs in its controlled substance list than do the feds in the CSA, meaning that we don't have a categorical match for removability purposes. We just don't. That ends the whole inquiry, unless the Arizona criminal statute is divisible, meaning in this case that possessing different types of drugs in Arizona constitutes different crimes, rather than merely means of committing the same crime. Now, that's the question the Ninth Circuit respectfully sent to the Arizona Supreme Court two and a half years ago. Are the drug or the drug type paraphernalia listed in those two controlled substance type crimes means, or rather, are they elements that the prosecution must prove to convict? if the latter, the statute is divisible, and the IJBIA and Ninth Circuit can review certain conviction documents to see if the non-citizens did indeed possess or use drugs listed in the federal CSA. So what did the Arizona Supreme Court say? Drumroll, please. Well, in a sentence that I must admit made me laugh at my desk, the Arizona Supreme Court said, quote, because the divisibility of a criminal statute pertains solely to federal law and no Arizona court has addressed the issue, we improvidently accepted those questions and now decline to answer them. End quote. That's just good judicial humor. The Ninth Circuit respectfully disagrees in a footnote. But when it certified this whole case to the Arizona Supreme Court and asked them to answer the questions, the Ninth Circuit also certified the question alternatively as quote, put another way. Is jury unanimity, or concurrence, required as to which drug or drugs listed, or was involved in an offense under either statute? End quote. That question is really the same question as is the statute divisible, and the Arizona Supreme Court did answer that question. Drumroll, please. Quote, With respect to section 13-3408, the drug possession for sale statute, the Arizona Supreme Court held that jury unanimity regarding the identity of a specific drug is required for a conviction. End quote. That's pretty much fatal for divisibility. Jury unanimity on a fact almost always establishes that the fact is an element for criminal conviction, and if a state Supreme Court says it is, that's pretty much the end of the story, because it's a question of state law. It's fatal here for one of the non-citizens, because having then applied the modified categorical approach, because the statute is divisible, the conviction documents show that the non-citizen possessed cocaine, which indeed is listed in both the federal CSA and, of course, the Arizona Criminal Controlled Substance list. As to the other statute, though, quote, the Arizona court declined to answer the question as to Section 13-3415, the possession of drug paraphernalia, end quote. This case is like swimming through molasses. As the Arizona Supreme Court declined to answer that sub question, the Ninth Circuit did, and held that it too was divisible as to the type of drug paraphernalia possessed. True, said the Ninth Circuit. The statute is confusing, and Arizona state case law is all over the place. Although, quote, the statute's use of the phrase a drug, as opposed to any drug, supports but does not require coming to the conclusion that drug type is an element. Continuing in its review, then, the Arizona sentencing guidelines for probation, according to the Ninth Circuit, seem to take a harder line for possession of methamphetamine paraphernalia as opposed to other paraphernalias. So there's that. And while the jury instructions are also unclear, the Ninth Circuit believes that the best reading of them is that a jury must input the type of drug paraphernalia they agree a defendant possessed, particularly as the phrase, quote, name of drug, end quote, is underlined in the model jury instructions, indicates to the Ninth Circuit that it's an element. Finally, as it's all still a bit unclear to the Ninth, the court took a peek at the conviction documents as the Supreme Court's Mathis decision permits as a last resort And saw that the prosecution in this case charged a specific type of drug possession, cocaine. Now, the non citizen eventually pled down to possession of drug paraphernalia instead. But the Ninth Circuit still believed that the charging document in this case could be used to establish that the paraphernalia statute was divisible. At the end of the day, I believe even the Ninth Circuit panel would tell you that this isn't the strongest decision on a statute's divisibility. But then again, even the Arizona Supreme Court didn't want to touch the question to the Ninth Circuit, divisibility is the best reading of the Arizona paraphernalia possession statute. So, as the Arizona statute is divisible as to the type of drug paraphernalia possessed, the modified categorical approach can apply, the court can look to the conviction documents not just to determine divisibility but for the substance, and the court could see that cocaine paraphernalia, I guess, was listed in the conviction document, and cocaine is listed in the federal CSA. Because cocaine is listed in the federal CSA, a conviction for possessing cocaine paraphernalia makes a non-citizen removable, or in this case, ineligible for relief. Both non-citizens here, therefore, lost their cases. But here's this. Don't quite understand it, but the Ninth Circuit said it, so I'll repeat it. Notwithstanding the fact that removability had already been established for other reasons in both cases... And notwithstanding, therefore, the fact that the inquiry here was really about relief from removal, where non citizens have the burden, quote, in both cases, the government must show that petitioners' Arizona state law convictions are related to a controlled substance under federal law, end quote. The Ninth sure Circuit put that burden on the government here. I wonder why. Something to look at when litigating a similar case. And that is Romero Milan v. Garland. Next up is Singh v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 30th, 2022. This case is about change, country condition, motions to reopen, and credibility. Mr. Singh is from India and entered the United States without authorization in 1996. Way back when, he sought asylum as a Sikh who supports the creation of Khalistan and the Akhle Dal Mayan Party. And while I'm certainly no expert on India, I do know that there's a long history of conflict and sometimes violence between the Sikh community and the Hindu majority in India, and possibly with other communities. Of course, nothing's black and white, and I'm no expert. In any event, an immigration judge found Mr. Singh not credible in 1997 and so disregarded most of his fears. Indeed, the IJ, quote, found that Mr. Singh had failed to even establish his identity, end quote. Mr. Singh appealed to the BIA, the BIA denied, and the Ninth Circuit eventually affirmed it all way back in 2004. Mr. Singh was not physically removed, and he moved to reopen in 2018 with the BIA based on materially changed country conditions in India for Sikhs. In support, Mr. Singh, quote, submitted the following new evidence. His Indian birth certificate, his California marriage license, his wife's application for asylum, his children's birth certificates and the application for asylum of his eldest daughter, who is not a U.S. citizen, a letter from the Man party leader attesting to Mr. Singh's membership in the party, end quote, affidavits from family members and at least his mom, a statement from his Sikh church, and reputable country condition evidence. The BIA denied the motion to reopen, but the Ninth Circuit remanded, And I could be wrong, but I believe that this may be the first non-citizen-friendly published decision from Judge Lee. Could be wrong. But friendly it was. To recap, to prevail on such a motion to reopen, a non-citizen must 1. Produce evidence that conditions have changed in the country of removal. 2. Show that the evidence is material. 3. Show that the evidence was unavailable and would not have been discovered or presented at the previous hearings and 4. Establish and fascia eligibility for the relief sought. Not true. In Greenwood v. Garland, episode 112, the Ninth Circuit, quote, endorsed the reasoning and conclusion in matter of FSN in which the BIA had explained that to prevail on a motion to reopen alleging changed country conditions where the persecution claim was previously denied based on an adverse credibility finding in the underlying proceedings, the respondent must either overcome the prior determination or show that the new claim is independent of the evidence that was found to be not credible, end quote. Fair enough. But FSN did not preclude the claim here. Here, Mr. Singh established, based on independent evidence, what had been lacking all those years ago. He is a Sikh, and he is connected to the man party. Or that is to say, the BIA at least needed to address this evidence and explain why it remains deficient if it's going to deny the motion to reopen. In a quote I don't hate, following the more difficult motion to reopen landscape post-FSN, itself episode 7, by the way. The Ninth Circuit explains that while it has held that the BIA, quote, may rely on a prior adverse credibility determination to deny a motion to reopen, that does not mean the BIA can deny a motion to reopen just because that motion touches upon the same claim or subject matter as the previous adverse credibility finding, end quote. This is all particularly important here because the new evidence, quote, fills some gaps on which the adverse credibility finding was predicated, end quote. I like that quote and that standard, too. I guess all of this might not matter if the BIA had properly held that conditions hadn't worsened for Sikhs in India in the alternative, but the BIA erred in that finding as well. Looks like police are searching for Sikhs, killing some, and labeling many terrorists. End quote. These reports of worsening conditions link directly to Mr. Singh's claim because the affidavit from Mr. Singh's mother states that the police were looking for Mr. Singh in 2018 and suspected him of receiving military training in Pakistan. End quote. Sounds like there's a bit of a story there. A question for the merits, I suppose. But in any event, in a quote applicable to many a similar case in this country, quote, the country conditions evidence reveals a marked change from the conditions at the time of Mr. Singh's original hearing in 1997, end quote. Do the math and include it in your similar seek based motions to reopen. And use the same evidence described in this decision of worsening conditions, of course. Now, to conclude, the Ninth Circuit did hold that the BIA properly rejected Mr. Singh's attempt to reopen his case based on a claimed fear of persecution relying on family membership. But the Sikh stuff would qualify as a religion-based claim at a minimum, I believe. And for that reason, the case was remanded and Mr. Singh gets another shot. Congratulations, Gersh Sarin, for petitioner. And that is Singh v. Garland. Next is Casas v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on August 29, 2022. This case is about reinstatement. Ms. Casas is from Mexico and was ordered and physically removed from the United States in 2008. She reentered the U.S. unlawfully, and when DHS learned that she had reentered the United States, DHS reinstated the final order of removal. DHS initiates this reinstatement process with the Form I-871, and in the Form I-871, DHS must first inform a non-citizen of DHS's intent to reinstate the final order, giving the non-citizen reasonable notice of what's about to go down. But here, in contrast, quote, according to the dates on the Form I-871 Ms. Casas received, DHS made its decision to reinstate Ms. Casas' removal order first and then gave Miss notice either one day or six months late—an inversion of the procedure ordinarily requiring notice to a non-citizen before a final decision is rendered. End quote. In essence, DHS was supposed to notify of its intent to reinstate, not its final decision to do so. There were other issues too, but Miss Cassas definitely received the form I-871 and did not object or otherwise challenge it. It appears. Until 2020, that is, when DHS sought to physically remove Ms. Casas after she appeared for a routine ICE checkup. When ICE detained her, she expressed a fear of return to Mexico. Both a DHS asylum officer and then an immigration judge on appeal found that Ms. Casas did not, in fact, have a reasonable fear of persecution, such that she could apply for withholding of removal or cat protection and avoid physical removal following reinstatement. Ms. Kastas brought it all directly to the Seventh Circuit, bypassing the BIA as generally occurs in challenges to reinstatement. First, the Seventh Circuit held that regardless of whether DHS violated the regulatory notice requirement for reinstatement purposes, Ms. Kastas couldn't succeed because she needed to establish that she suffered prejudice as a result of DHS's violation. Seeing the writing on the wall, Ms. Cassis did argue that, quote, the government's failure to follow its own regulations is inherently prejudicial, end quote. However, and while that might be the case with some regulations, it isn't the case with this regulation about reinstatements at the Seventh Circuit, and Ms. Cassis, quote, does not point to anything that would suggest that the outcome of a reasonable fear interview would have been different had the government complied with its regulations, end quote. Indeed, it appears to the Seventh Circuit that Ms. Cassis chose not to contest any of this for a long time. As to the merits of the asylum officer and I.J.'s no reasonable fear finding, the Seventh Circuit upheld the denial as, quote, the evidence before the asylum officer and the I.J. was threadbare on the nexus between her family membership and a fear of persecution, end quote. That is, even if Ms. Cassis feared persecution, and even if family can be a protected particular social group under asylum law, and it totally can, Ms. Cassis didn't connect the dots with evidence sufficiently. At most, she established only that quote, unknown individuals kidnapped her stepfather and uncle who were on-duty police officers for unknown reasons in 2013 or 2014, end quote. This was insufficient to the Seventh Circuit to get a full-fledged withholding of removal or CAT hearing in immigration court following reinstatement. Ms. Cassis, therefore, lost her case. And that is Cassis v. Garland. Next up is Domingo Mendez v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on August 31st, 2022. This case is about non-LPR cancellation of removal. Mr. Domingo Mendez is from Guatemala and has lived in the United States for 13 years without authorization. He and his partner have two U.S. citizen children together under the age of 10 years old. In removal proceedings, Mr. Domingo Mendez applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 248B, which requires, among other elements apparently satisfied in this case, that he establish that his removal will result in exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to at least one of his U.S. citizen children. An immigration judge found that standard met and granted the relief, but DHS appealed, and the BIA reversed. A bit of a theme on the pod of late, To summarize, the BIA, unlike the IJ, didn't believe that the hardship that the children would face accompanying their father to Guatemala or remaining in the U.S. without his income and other support was so bad as to permit Mr. Domingo Mendez to remain here. Did the BIA err? It did, for example, if instead of reviewing the IJ's factual findings as clearly erroneous, it made its own factual findings to overturn the IJ. When the BIA errs in these type of cases, that's one common way. In this case, though, it did not err, according to the First Circuit. The dispute mainly came down to whether Mr. Domingo Mendez could work as a chef in Guatemala. And although the BIA appears to have used different language than the IJ in reaching its finding, the First Circuit believes that the BIA and the IJ similarly described Mr. Domingo Mendez's testimony, but that the IJ and the BIA just came to different conclusions based on those facts. That's not improper fact-finding, at least if done correctly. In any event, quote, it does not appear that any difference in the descriptions of the testimony was material, end quote. Neither the IJ nor the BIA's decisions ultimately relied on whether Mr. Domingo Mendez could work in a restaurant, or whether it mattered whether he was working as a chef rather than a cook. So said the First Circuit anyway. The First Circuit believes that the BIA assumed the worst, that Mr. Domingo Mendez couldn't get a job as a chef in Guatemala, but that even if that was the case, the lives of his children, if they joined him, wouldn't be bad enough to permit him to remain in the U.S. Calling Congress's hardship standard implemented in 1997 a, quote, stringent statutory requirement, end quote, and a, quote, hard-hearted statutory mandate, end quote, The First Circuit agreed with OIL that the BIA considered all evidence in totality, but permissibly held that it did not meet the high standard for non-LPR cancellation of removal. The First Circuit therefore dismissed the petition for review. So there you go, a decision the result of Congress getting rid of suspension of deportation and replacing it with the more difficult-to-obtain cancellation of removal in 1997. And while ultimately harsh for Mr. Domingo Mendez and his family, the First Circuit did review this whole issue notwithstanding the Supreme Court's Patel decision, and implied in a footnote that it might do so again in the future. So there's that. Cold comfort. And that is Domingo Mendez v. Garland.
1: Our last case this week is Parada v. Garland issued by the 5th Circuit on September 1st, 2022. The fact you're hearing from me, Ed Ramos, means that the federal courts did in fact get sneaky, at least the 5th Circuit, issuing a late-breaking Friday decision that I'll be covering for Kevin. This case is about deficient notices to appear and non-LPR cancellation of removal. Ms. Parada and her daughter are non-citizens who entered the United States unlawfully in September 2006. Shortly after entering, they were issued NTAs, which were, you guessed it, deficient, lacking the date and time information of their hearing. Now, Miss Parada and her daughter were later sent notices of hearing that provided that missing information, and they apparently got those notices, because about a year later they attended a final individual hearing and lost their claim for asylum. They appealed to the BIA, but the BIA affirmed. Still, despite those final orders of removal, Ms. Parada and her daughter were never physically deported from the United States. Fast forwarding to 2018, Ms. Parada's attorney moved to reopen her case, arguing that she now qualified for non-LPR cancellation of removal and should be given a chance to apply for that relief in a reopened proceeding. Remember, Ms. Parada had entered the United States in 2006, so sometime in 2016 she met the 10-year physical presence requirement. Of course, service of a notice to appear will generally stop the clock for purposes of accruing the 10 years. But as long-time listeners of the podcast will know, the Supreme Court in Pereira v. Sessions held that a notice to appear that is missing the time and place information required by the statute will not stop the clock. So based on that decision, Ms. Padida's attorney argued that her clock had never stopped because the notice to appear was missing the mandatory date and time information. The BIA denied the motion on the theory that the later notices of hearing, which included the missing time and place information, cured those defects in the NTA. Now, those familiar with the Supreme Court's decisions in this area might be scratching their heads, because in Niz Chavez v. Garland, the Supreme Court definitively shut down that argument, holding that later notices of hearing don't cure a defective NTA for stop-time rule purposes. But the BIA's decision in Ms. Parada's case was issued before Niz Chavez, Still, the government defended the BIA's decision before the Fifth Circuit, pushing a different theory for why Ms. Parada's 10-year clock had stopped. The government argued that even if the notice to appear didn't stop the clock, the final order of removal did. The Fifth Circuit wasn't having it, and for a pretty basic reason. The statutory text of the stop-time rule doesn't list issuance of a final order of removal as one of the conditions that will stop the time. As the Fifth Circuit put it, quote, While that argument has some intuitive appeal, we do not divine the meanings of statutes by intuition, but instead must be sticklers when decoding legislative intent. Quote. The Fifth Circuit's holding joins the Ninth Circuit in Quebrado Cantor v. Garland, episode number 80 of the podcast, and the Tenth Circuit's decision in Estrada Cardona v. Garland, episode 121 of the podcast. Because the clock never stopped in Miss Parada's case, she satisfied the 10-year physical presence requirement for cancellation of removal, and the BIA committed legal error in holding otherwise. The Fifth Circuit granted the petition and remanded to the BIA for further proceedings. And that was Parada v. Garland.
0: So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli & Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M-Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.